0: Hello, listeners, and welcome once again to the Unknown Friends Book Review Podcast. Today you are listening to our next to last episode of the season, episode 39 of season two. Thank you so much for joining me this week. I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson from Kitty Wayne Productions, and if you're ever interested in learning more about me and my writing, you can just visit my website, kittywayneproductions.com. Now, currently on Unknown Friends, we're in the midst of a series of book reviews, which we'll be wrapping up next week in our final episode. We are discussing C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, and today we've come to the sixth of the seven books, titled The Magician's Nephew. Now, it took C.S. Lewis a lot longer to write The Magician's Nephew than any of the other chronicles. Although it was the last of the Narnia books that he finished writing, it was in fact the second book he began drafting shortly after he'd finished The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in 1949. His friend and constructive critic, Roger Lancelin Green, had read his manuscript of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and he asked Lewis how a solitary lamppost happened to exist in the middle of a snowy forest in the land of Narnia. And Lewis seemed to think this was a good question, because he quickly started trying to figure out an answer. So he wrote 20 or 30 pages of a prequel to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in his attempt to figure out the source of the Narnian lamppost. And I think there were other questions as well about the beginnings of Narnia that he wanted to explore. But this prequel didn't get very far. He set it aside pretty quickly as he turned to write The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe's sequel instead, Prince Caspian. And then he went rapidly forward with um, The Voyage of the Don Treader, The Horse and His Boy, and The Silver Chair. But then at that point, in the summer of 1951, he returned to this idea of a Narnian prequel, and tried a second time to write an explanation. And he got a lot farther this time. I think he wrote about three-fourths of the book before he got some more constructive criticism from Roger Lanslyn Green, suggesting that the book's storyline had a, a structural weakness. So then Lewis set it aside again, and he wrote the final chronicle of Narnia, The Last Battle, which we will discuss next week. And then at last he returned a third time to his prequel and finally completed it to his satisfaction. So this prequel, The Magician's Nephew, was then published actually before The Last Battle, because The Last Battle just has to come last. If you've read it, you understand. You could not end The Chronicles with any of the other books. So... The Magician's Nephew was published in 1955, a year after the publication of the fifth Chronicle of Narnia, The Horse and His Boy. So what kind of prequel is this book? How much backstory does Lewis actually give us for The Land of Narnia? How far back in time does he go? Well, there's kind of two answers to that last question, at least since time in Earth and time in Narnia don't always stay in sync. As we've seen in the other books, any number of years may pass in Narnia while only a short amount of time passes on Earth. So in Earth time, Lewis's prequel is happening about 40 years before the events of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So, of course, none of the Pevensey children are involved. They won't even be born for many years still. But one character from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe does show up in The Magician's Nephew, and he is, in fact, the hero of the story. Diggory Kirk is our hero. And in The Magician's Nephew, he's a young boy. But in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he is a middle-aged bachelor professor not unlike C.S. Lewis himself. And he is, in fact, the Professor Kirk in the first book, to whose country house the Pevensey children are sent to be safe during the air raids. And it's in his house that they find the magic wardrobe that leads them into Narnia. So in The Magician's Nephew, Lewis tells the story of how Diggory Kirk, as a boy, first discovered how to get to the land of Narnia, along with his friend Polly. So Diggory Kirk lives in London with his mother, who is very ill, and his Aunt Letty, a practical, well-meaning woman, and his Uncle Andrew, who is a not-well-meaning man. Actually, Uncle Andrew is secretly a magician, or at least a wannabe magician, and that's where we get the book's title, by the way, since Diggory is his nephew. Well, one day, Diggory and his friend and neighbor, Polly, are exploring the attics and rafters of their houses, and they inadvertently break in on Uncle Andrew in his secret study. Uncle Andrew is surprisingly glad to see them, and he offers Polly a yellow ring from among a number of rings he has on his study table. But when Polly accepts the gift and picks up the ring, she vanishes, right into thin air. Diggory is, of course, shocked and horrified, but Uncle Andrew is pleased, and he then proceeds to explain. He has been experimenting and believes he has created some magical rings that, when you touch them, send you instantly into another world. Uncle Andrew doesn't know anything about this other world, he's never touched the rings himself, but that's why he tricked Polly into touching a ring so that he could test his theory on her. And now that she disappeared, as he predicted, Uncle Andrew intends to make Diggory also pick up a ring to follow Polly and bring her back into our world, and then the two children must tell Uncle Andrew everything they experienced. Well, of course, Diggory is rightfully upset that his uncle is such a coward and a bully that he's unwilling to go into this other world himself, but sends two children instead. But Diggory is pretty helpless and so agrees to do what Uncle Andrew wants. So Diggory picks up a yellow ring and his surroundings start fading away as he's magically drawn out of our world into another He then finds himself bursting out of a pool of water into a forest that is full of little pools of water, and he finds Polly in the forest, and after they do some talking and thinking, they realize that this forest is not exactly another world per se, but it's really an in-between place. The truth is, every single pool of water leads to a different world. Diggory and Polly came out of our world into the forest and can get back home by jumping back into the same pool, but they could get into any number of other worlds by going into the many other pools. So Diggory and Polly decide to do some exploring before they go straight back to Uncle Andrew. They jump into one of the other pools, and that's when things start to spin out of control. Without going into details, in this other world that they enter, the children inadvertently wake a terrible witch from an enchanted sleep. And despite their best efforts, she follows them out of her world and into theirs, into ours, Earth. And that is freaky, let me tell you. It is somewhat comical the way Lewis portrays that part of the story, but also scary. This is almost the only time in the Chronicles that anyone from another world gets into our world. It's nearly always the other way around, except for Prince Caspian's very brief visit to Earth at the end of the silver chair, And then this incident in the Magician's Nephew, the Witch's half day or so on Earth. Well, Diggory and Polly are appalled that the Witch managed to come with them to their own world, and they decide they've got to get her out again and back into her world as soon as possible. And that is when we finally make our way to Narnia. Out of the seven books, the magician's nephew is definitely the one that spends the least time in the world of Narnia, despite it being the origin story of Narnia, interestingly. But we do finally get there. So Diggory and Polly mistakenly take the witch not back to her world, but into a completely different world, one the children have not visited before. And it seems to be an empty world. They find themselves in utter darkness and silence. And they're at a loss what to do until they hear something. They hear the beginnings of a song. And in time, they realize they're witnessing the creation of a new world. And a great lion is the one singing it into life. And lots more happens that I won't spoil. Diggory and Polly still haven't properly dealt with the problem of the witch. Diggory is also troubled by his mother's illness and hopes to find some way of healing her. And Uncle Andrew needs to learn to stop tinkering with magic that he doesn't begin to understand. But unfortunately, he's not a very teachable person. But that is at least the setup of the story and some of the conflicts that it raises which need to be settled and as in all the Narnia books when the children finally meet Aslan that's the meeting that will change their lives forever and he's the one who can ultimately help them through all the difficulties they face but he doesn't just magically wipe away their problems he gives them tasks a quest like he so often gives to the children who enter Narnia from our world. And Diggory and Polly must trust him and obey if they hope to find answers to all their questions. So, thematically, there is a lot going on in The Magician's Nephew, and we can't cover it all in this episode. But here are a few of the concepts that stand out the most to me. As you can tell, this story is about creation, about life, and it's also somewhat about destruction. As in all of the Narnia books, C.S. Lewis shows us the true natures of good and evil with unmistakable clarity. Goodness means life, evil means death. Aslan creates and gives and blesses the witch kills and steals and curses. This this may seem too basic to be important, but it is so important. Especially in a book written first and foremost for children, I think it's vital to show the reality of good and evil. The truth that good is good for us, not just in some theoretical purely ethical sense but in a palpable experiential sense goodness brings joy and peace and and beauty and adventure and all those wonderful things and evil brings only the opposite that reality is perfectly pictured in the magician's nephew and of course in all the other chronicles and i should add Of course, evil sometimes appears to be attractive, even though it truly holds no real life or satisfaction, and C.S. Lewis portrays that as well. The witch in The Magician's Nephew is, in some sense, a stunningly beautiful woman. But as soon as you see who she is and what she does, she is absolutely repulsive. Even the children recognize this. Well, in fact, they pick up on it a lot sooner than some of the adults. Certainly much sooner than Uncle Andrew does. But you put the witch next to Aslan, and her appeal can't come close to matching Aslan, because she is hollow. She's treacherous and cruel and self-serving, whereas he is just and gentle and self-giving. So on the surface, evil may momentarily appear to be attractive. But if you look beneath the gloss, or better yet, put it side by side with goodness, and there's no contest. Now, all this said, there is a very interesting point C.S. Lewis makes in this book, through the character of Uncle Andrew, which adds an important layer to all this. I've been talking about seeing good and evil for what they truly are. And Lewis points out that if you really want to see clearly, you can. But if you don't want to see clearly, you won't. Good and evil are what they are, and that doesn't change. But when it comes to our perception of them, it is unfortunately true that people see what they want to see. I think one of the most thought provoking quotes from the magician's nephew is this one. Lewis writes, What you see and hear depends a good deal on where you are standing. It also depends on what sort of person you are. And Lewis goes on to portray this reality playing out through the character of Uncle Andrew. I want to read you the the passage that follows because it's so simple but so fundamentally true and insightful into the way humans tend to behave. So this is how Lewis's narrator describes Uncle Andrew in this scene. When the lion had first begun singing, long ago when it was still quite dark, Uncle Andrew had realized that the noise was a song— and he had disliked the song very much. It made him think and feel things he did not want to think and feel. Then, when the sun rose and he saw that the singer was a lion, only a lion, as he said to himself, he tried his hardest to make himself believe that it wasn't singing, and never had been singing, only roaring, as any lion might, in a zoo in our own world. Of course it can't really have been singing, he thought, I must have imagined it. I've been letting my nerves get out of order. Who ever heard of a lion singing? And the longer and more beautifully the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear nothing but roaring. Now, the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. Uncle Andrew did. He soon did hear nothing but roaring in Aslan's song. Soon he couldn't have heard anything else, even if he had wanted to. So there's an aspect to this passage that is comical, in a way. The trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. But of course, it's sobering as well. We'd better be careful to want the truth more than anything else. To want what is good and real because we'll only ever see and hear what we want to see and hear. And there's another moment, much earlier in the story, in which Lewis gives us another insight into how we humans work, and again it's through Uncle Andrew. Something which I've really been meaning to mention from the beginning of our Narnia episodes is the way these stories talk about stories. Stories for C.S. Lewis are guides and mirrors. Good stories teach us truths about how the world works and how we are to navigate life. And perhaps most importantly, stories show us reflections of ourselves. As far as stories guiding how we behave, from the very first book in the Chronicles, the narrator points out that the Pevensey children have read the right books. When they enter Narnia, they've already been given some guidance from stories they've read about things like which animals are the good animals and about how to survive in a strange world. And this keeps getting mentioned every so often throughout the first few books, how the Pevensies are sort of prepared for adventures in Narnia thanks to the stories they've read. Whereas, for instance, Eustace in The Voyage of the Don Treader is completely unprepared for Narnia, in part because he hasn't read any of the right books. So this is an interesting thread running through the chronicles, and something like it crops up again in The Magician's Nephew, but perhaps in a more thought-provoking context. In the opening chapters... After Uncle Andrew has tricked Polly into touching a ring, and Diggory learns that his uncle sent her out of the world because he was too cowardly to go himself, Diggory stands up to his uncle and says this. You're simply a wicked, cruel magician, like the ones in the stories. Well, I've never read a story in which people of that sort weren't paid out in the end, and I bet you will be, and serve you right. And then the narrator says, Of all the things Diggory had said, this was the first that really went home. Uncle Andrew started, and there came over his face a look of such horror that, beast though he was, you could almost feel sorry for him. But a second later, he smoothed it all away. That was a moment of truth, wasn't it? For an instant, Uncle Andrew had the opportunity to see himself for what he really was. And the way he came by that opportunity was Diggory's incisive reference to the bad magicians in stories. First of all, Diggory had to have read the right stories in order for him to be able to make sense of the strange events that are suddenly happening in his life. Learning that his uncle is a wannabe magician... Not to mention a manipulative coward. And so because of what he's read, Diggory recognizes the type, you could say, the character type of the bad magician, the wicked conniver. And he points this out to his uncle. And Uncle Andrew, for a moment, is shown his own reflection in stories. He is an example of that character type. And therefore his fate will be the terrible fate of that character type if he doesn't change. So good stories give us the means to recognize ourselves and others for who we really are, if we're willing to see it. As we've already discussed, we only see what we want to see. Which is why, after just one startling moment of horror, Uncle Andrew can shake off that instant of self-knowledge. He won't believe it's true because he doesn't want to believe it. And the last quotation from The Magician's Nephew that I want to share, which ties in to much of what I've been saying, is a very short but challenging statement made by Aslan near the end of the book. He tells Diggory, all get what they want. They do not always like it. We humans want a lot of dumb things, frankly. Half the time, we don't even know what we want, exactly. Or we want things that aren't even real. But most importantly, a lot of the time, we want things that don't make us happy when we get them. One of the core concepts of C.S. Lewis's stories and his nonfiction as well, for that matter, is the simple fact that human beings tend to spend their lives wanting and pursuing things that just aren't worth having. Things that will hurt us, or at the very least, not satisfy us when we get them. And we will get them in the end. Too often, that's the tragedy, that we do get what we think we want, And it turns out to be a nightmare instead of the dream we expected. All get what they want, but they do not always like it. I have to also bring in something Lewis says in his essay, The Weight of Glory, which he wrote in the early 40s. And he he just expresses this so powerfully. He writes, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. C.S. Lewis, in all the stories he wrote, I think, hopes... To challenge us, inspire us, to want things worth having. To accept the infinite joy offered to us, instead of marching blindly on towards the mirages that we foolishly desire. We're going to get what we really desire. We'd better consider carefully what we truly want, lest we settle for things that will never make us happy. Lewis wants us to want infinite joy, because it is attainable. I imagine we'll talk a bit more about some of these ideas next week in our discussion of The Last Battle, because there is some thematic overlap. So I will conclude here for today. There's lots more that could be said about The Magician's Nephew, And although I am out of time for this week's episode, if you have thoughts or questions about the book you would like to share with me, I would love to hear from you personally. You can message me on social media or Patreon, those links are in the episode description, and I'd so enjoy continuing this discussion with you one-on-one. Thanks so much for listening to today's book review, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, make sure you're subscribed to the Unknown Friends podcast, and if you can, take just a moment to leave a short review. Nothing fancy, nothing long, just a quick comment to let others know that you enjoy the podcast so that they will be encouraged to listen to these episodes as well. Thank you so much to those of you who have already left reviews. I really appreciate it. Be sure to come back next week for my discussion of the 7th, Chronicle of Narnia, The Last Battle, and that will be our final episode of this season. How crazy is that? A special thank you to my patrons who support the podcast on Patreon, and just a reminder to you guys that your monthly bonus episode is out today, so you'll find that on the Patreon-exclusive podcast feed, and I hope you enjoy it. I did something a little different this month, and I had a blast, I actually recorded a short story by P.G. Woodhouse for you, so I hope you have fun listening to that. Next season, by the way, I will be continuing to record regular bonus episodes for patrons. And instead of being preview episodes, they will usually be bonus book reviews. So more info coming on that soon. That's just a quick glimpse into the plans for season three. And be sure to listen to the end of next week's episode to get a few more details. So thanks everyone for being here and listening and supporting. I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson, and to learn more about me, you can just visit my website, kittywaymproductions.com. I'll see you guys next Wednesday for the last episode of Season 2.